Welcome to the Low Rates High Returns podcast where we'll uncover the timeless investment principles so you can escape the rat race, earn passive income and create lasting wealth. I'm Pete Wargent, investor and financial coach and I'm joined by Stephen Moriarty, private investor and the co-author of our new book, Low Rates High Returns. In each episode of this podcast, we talk about the crucial concepts around managing your own money, how to invest, when to invest and the key lessons we've learned along the way about generating passive income. The things we discuss in this episode shouldn't be taken as financial advice, and we recommend you reach out to a licensed professional advisor who can help you with your unique circumstances. Enjoy the show. G'day, welcome to the Low Rates, High Returns podcast with me, Pete Wargent. I'm here with Steve Moriarty. Good day, Steve. Still here. Yeah. So, uh, I haven't dropped dead yet. Welcome. Uh, today, we're going to talk about another one of the popular investment strategies, the 52-week low formula. Before we come on to that, uh, something a bit more topical, a uh, lot of talk about inflation around the world. And uh, I suppose you could certainly make a case now that Australia, the headline inflation rate is 3.5%, so above the 2 to 3% target. The core inflation figure hasn't got there yet, but with all the stuff that's going on, floods and Russia and big problems in Europe and supply chains, we could easily see much higher inflation this year. Now, um, I was talking on a, um, to a guy, Louis Christopher, a property guy, last week, and he was talking about all this stuff. And we were just talking about what kind of assets tend to do well in an inflationary environment. I guess precious metals and gold. Mm. Um, I suppose you could make the case for, I guess, tangible assets being a place to, to be. And Louis said, if you look back to the 1970s, uh, Sydney house prices quadrupled in the 1970s, not just not because the economy was doing so well, but largely because it was just very inflationary and people wanted to get their money into tangible yeah. assets. But you know, what do you think in the current context, Dave, what kind of um, tangible assets might be uh, might people be looking at? Yeah, I think metals are probably pretty good, precious metals. Now, there's there's two or three reasons for that. First of all, as you know, I'm a I'm a bit of a mean reversion guy, um, so gold has not had a good a great ten years, and 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 I'm talking US stocks. US stocks have absolutely killed it since the market low in 2009, low cape ratio. So, um, as we said in a few previous sessions. You know, when stocks do well, gold doesn't. And when gold does well, stocks don't. So I think the next decade is going to be more uh, beneficial for gold. And what I mean by that is I mean the next decade. So if the Cape ratio goes from 35 to 13, as it did in 09, I would flip the switch and go, right, now's a great time to buy stocks again. Um, but generally, at where we are, you know, this week, so to speak, gold and precious metals are probably a good place to be from two perspectives. The first perspective is the, the market psychology of, oh, when inflation hits, you want to buy gold. Okay, well, and that will alone drive the gold price. Um, the second part is more related to uh, precious metals. The reason why I think they're going to be a good investment is in, you know, if you go back the last hundred years, we've spent our time using cement and iron ore and coal 
um, though, you know, timber. Why? Because we had plenty of that stuff and we could cut it down and dig it up and that's what we made our roads out of and our bridges and our buildings and stuff. And that's been really, really successful. There's been lots of value in building individual cars and you and I know, Pete, that, you know, old cars used to weigh an absolute mozza. Now they're they're basically a computer on wheels. Two tonnes of pig iron. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so now, and I think for the future the precious metals are going to be really, really valuable because, you know, when we built, when we built uh, fridges and cars and washing machines and, you know, motor mowers and stuff, you used a lot of iron ore, uh, used a lot of copper, you know, all of those sort of materials that we had a lot of. Now, the value is in technology and its products. So, you know, that smartphone you're holding in your hand has a bunch of rare earths and all sorts of, you know, of these technology metals, which are really, really valuable. Now, the issue I think why they're going to be important is because uh, China dominates, for example, in things such as rare earths. Because we've got a global supply chain, what the world has essentially done is created a series of asymmetric outcomes. And what I mean by that is saying this, when you rely on Russia and Ukraine for 25% of the world's wheat exports, you sure as hell don't want any strife in Russia and the Ukraine. In 2011, only moderately, but there was a bit of a panic about Japanese factories after the tsunami because a lot of these, uh, these days, a lot of uh, products, you know, the smartphone, I think, is, is, has parts and components from 40 countries. Um, all you need is one of those to go pear-shaped and you've got a real problem. So that point aside, I think precious metals, which has generally been left to emerging markets because it's a dirty game and it's environmentally unfriendly, it's easier to let China pollute its countryside than it is for Australia or America. Now, that's going to change really rapidly and I think we will get inflation in prices bought about by saying, well, we can't get it from there anymore. And even if we can, what we realise is they're becoming our strategic adversaries, not our partners anymore. So in other words, the game's changed and you need to have a look at that and say, you know, every company is now looking at it saying, well, okay, we were getting our wheat or our oil from Russia. Uh, Right. Okay. Now, where do we get it from? And if this conflict is going to change the, the global dynamics, we may end up buying all of our oil from, you know, Venezuela or, or Iran. So that's going to have a real impact on what's going to happen over the future. And I think we're probably going to be in a little bit like the 70s, which could be, and I don't like saying it repeats perfectly, but I think we could find, we could have periods of high inflation. And if the market crashes, the CAPE ratio stayed low right through the 1970s. So, you know, again, if you think, oh, the CAPE's at seven, oh, geez, you know, what a great opportunity. And what you don't realise is inflation is eating away your returns. So unless the world gets a serious productivity drive, that can get more out of, you know, more things out of less resources. We're probably going to have a lot of inflation and that will be beneficial to existing 
hard asset. So in other words, like you mentioned, it's a lot easier to buy a house that is already built rather than saying, well, now I've got to build one and it's going to cost, cost me... Cost materials is up 20% from a year ago and I can't find a trader. Yes. Yeah, yeah, so... yeah. And so that's a really important point. Um, now, that will mean that the, the current house will go, <laughs> if they can't build it for 200, I can sell mine for 220 or whatever. But generally, you can benefit from that if you bought it in the pre-inflation inflationary days. Yes, and uh, well, there's yeah, there's plenty of talk, and this is not just an Australian issue. It's all around the globe. You know, we're seeing in Europe uh, producer prices in some instances absolutely rocketing higher. So, yes, plenty of angst around the world in that regard. So, mm. and the point of this um, mini series is not to push any one investment strategy, rather to review some popular investment strategies, and then people can fashion um, their own sort of approach as suits their personality and circumstances. Um, the one we're looking at today is the 52-week low formula, which was a um, book by Luke Wiley. A contrarian strategy, the lowest risk, beats the market and overcomes human emotions. So it's a big sell. Um, <laughs> Steve, tell us about the why would you pay attention to a 52-week low, low strategy. What is it actually the relevance of the, the benchmark of a 52-week high or low? Because when you look at you know, the financial media or the serious financial press and so on. It's probably one of the most quoted uh, statistics alongside the actual share price is actually what's the 52-week low, what's the 52-week high, what is the actual relevance of that as yep. a, an indicator? It's basically a simple way of determining a stock's, uh, you know, cheapness or its valuation or its expensive. You know, if you buy stocks that are at a 52-week high, you'll do really well because they've got a momentum. Yeah, yeah, they've got momentum and trend following. Whereas, you know, who the hell wants to buy a stock that looks like it's heading south rather than, you know, heading north? What Wiley is saying here is, and he's got about four criteria that we'll discuss, again, using a systematic approach, what he's saying is a stock that you bought at a 52-week low probably is closer to the bottom than it is to the top. So there's your first criteria. Look, you know, um, look amongst the, the, as Bruce Greenwald says, you know, look amongst the unloved and the hated and, you know, nobody else where, you know, go where nobody else wants to fish. So that's the first big criteria. And it's, a, again, a really simple one where if you look at a stock with a 52-week low, generally the PE or the cash flow might be low or there's some follow-up indicator you can look at to, to, to investigate further. So it's a pretty simple flag, if I can put it to you that way. So like, oh, it's at a 52-week low. Oh, okay, let's have a look at it. And you think, Pete, it's a little bit like the one we, we talked about with dogs of the Dow, right? They're all at their sort of 52-week low and you look at it and go, okay, well, that's probably not a bad time to start investigating. Yes, yeah, so, I, mean, I suppose in the one sense, like a 52-week low, it's a very arbitrary number. There's yeah, nothing yeah. special about a 52-week mm. low. You, I mean, you could say by the same time, well, why not look at a 26-week low? Yeah, or, yeah. But I, I suppose um, if enough people think that an indicator is um, an important you know, technical mm. uh, marker or whatnot, like the, then it almost becomes self-fulfilling and therefore it is actually significant. Yeah, abso yeah absolutely. Um, like gold, you know. Oh, you buy gold when, when there's inflation. Right, oh, so everyone runs into gold. See, I told you. It's a self-fulfilling <laughs> prophecy. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I guess in the end it is kind of... A, an arbitrary measurement mm. criteria or benchmark or indicator. 
I suppose the underlying idea here is is basically economics 101. You're buying something low and selling it high. Mm. You know, when you look at it in that context, well, you know, it makes perfect sense. How could you even argue against it? I think this um, sort of plays towards our cognitive biases because there is certainly something that goes on in investing. So you mentioned the iPhone before. This is a really good case in point. You know, um, some years back, it was really obvious, you know, the, um, you know, grandma and pops were using an iPad suddenly. Oh, this is really good. And the kids are totally addicted to their iPads. And even uh, my wife Heather's got an iPhone and she, you know, she hates this kind of stuff. But mm. you kind of, you could see where things were heading. Absolutely. Yeah. And then, you know, Apple was, you know, a really great company. You could see that it was becoming part of the infrastructure. Then Warren Buffett takes this, you know, huge position. It's his biggest common stock holding. And Apple's a $2 trillion company. And of course, now people are like, oh, yes, Apple's a great, you know, it's a great <laughs> We're company. We're so obvious. <laughs> yes, and, and now people see it as a safe long-term investment. Mm. But that is, to a certain degree, the cognitive bias we're talking about. You know, now everybody knows it's a great yeah. investment. Well, you've kind of missed the best time to buy, which was when it was more out of favour. Yeah, you know, so but- this is the... Um, I, well, I guess it goes back to Daniel Kahneman. It's system one and system two thinking, isn't it? The stock market's... You know, if a stock is down, oh Christ! You know, I better sell this it, thing. It's counterintuitive. Yes, in instead yeah. of the system two thinking, which is well, hang on a sec, this is actually a good opportunity when everyone else is sold. Yeah, well, you, you know, just on your point there in the iPhone, you know, um, everyone's going to use an iPhone and blah blah blah. Okay, what happens if Apple now has to move out of China to build its iPhone? What about if the iPhone, both metals involved in it? And the iPhone itself doubles in price. Oh, well, okay, everyone's going to hold on to their iPhone longer. Okay, well, if everyone does that, then Apple's not going to make as much out of its number one selling product with these huge margins. So like you say there, you get this sort of, this natural inclination to go, oh, well, whatever's happened is going to continue. And the 52-week low, the formula, and we'll talk a bit more about the other criteria, is basically saying what you're doing is you're being, again, contrarian with the human psychology that Wiley talks about and Draymond talks about by saying, I don't think that's going to continue. I think that's going to change. What criteria do I use to raise the probability that my contrarian strategy is going to be right? It's really bloody hard to do. Because, and that's why they sort of say you've got to do it formulaic or, you know, pick low PE stocks at 10, don't argue, just pick them and you'll be fine. But it's really hard to do because there's always that human subjectivity and our, and our desires to predict that, you know, get in the way of, of objective criteria. Yeah, and this is where the systematic approach is important. I mean, I'm thinking back now, maybe 18, 17, 18 years ago when... I was uh, working in the corporate environment back in those days and suddenly people were all using these Blackberries, you know, the, all those senior managers oh, had yeah, a Blackberry yeah. and then, the, you know, the partners of the firm, I was at, they started using the Blackberries and then they were plugging them into their laptops. And you, you can see this was a big thing at the time and yet, you know, technology evolves over time. Then Blackberry wasn't the, the sort of the market cornerstone. And then I, I suppose this is, you know, sometimes the... Things don't evolve the way we expect, and it's mm. harder to predict than it feels. You know, with Apple, it all seems so obvious in hindsight. Yeah, yeah. 
But if it was so obvious, why weren't we all buying Apple stock um, well, you know, 15 just, years ago? Just on that point, I had a BlackBerry. Um, because I was a regional manager at the time, they gave me a BlackBerry to test it out in the regions. I was in the, uh, the Queensland Public Service then. Um, to see how it would work and all that sort of stuff. Not now, well. Around, sorry? <laughs> Not well. <laughs> Not well. They, it actually did okay. But, of course, you didn't expect much from it in those days. Mm, you know, you expected it to drop out and, you know, have these teething issues. But, again, I bought BlackBerry a few years later when the iPhone came in and everybody said, no way are people going to buy the iPhone? And the reason why was because the BlackBerry had the best security, right? No, you know, you couldn't hack it. It was fantastic. The American government used Blackberries because of the security issue, you know, blah, blah, blah. Well, lo and behold, none of us gave a stuff about security. We were handing our credit cards over left, right and centre. So BlackBerry then said, we're going to have the keyboard, right? The idea was the physical keyboard. Nah. People didn't care about that. And in fact, we all loved the smartphone with the, you know, the touch keyboard. There were all these things that when you read about BlackBerry, as an investor, you thought, yep, no way is Apple going to, you know, eat BlackBerry's lunch. Killed it. Stone dead. Right. Netflix and um, Blockbuster. You know, those sorts of things are really, really hard to predict, even though you might, you know, who would be better read than Warren Buffett about IBM? But he still picked a dud, mm. you know. And so, again, it's these formulas where you say, this formula will give me the best chance of making most money over an investment lifetime. I know I'm not going to, you know, I know I'm not going to pick them all perfectly, but it'll still, you know, do me in, in, as a good way to go forward. Yeah, so on this, um, the, you made a point before there about momentum, you know, so outperforming stocks are going to be making the 52-week highs at some point. And I guess every crap stock has to make a 52-week low on the way down. Yeah, so yeah. I guess at some point you need to have this um, a series of filters so that you're actually picking quality. Um, and one of the obvious filters is debt. You know, if you get a highly indebted company and it makes a 52-week low, well, we've, we've got more than enough cases, um, you know, I guess in Australia we had things like Centro and then airlines. And, yep. You know, so I suppose this is one of the caveats about buying stocks at the 52-week low. Mm. I suppose the, the other quality filters, if you look at recent stocks that have made a 52-week a low, um, I did actually sort of have a glance at the, uh, the media um, earlier this morning, but I'm thinking things like, for example, was well, Zoom. You know, Zoom would be yeah, a good yeah. stock. You know, lots of tech stocks <laughs> during the well, yes, during the pandemic, you had a lot of stocks that became sort of massively popular. You know, the Ark ETF was buying all these sort of innovation yep. uh, type stocks, but you know, the vaccines have come along. You know, maybe the working from home trend is not going to be, you know, as dominant as it seemed 18 months ago. 52 week low, but you, you know, there you've got to think well. Okay, it is a 52-week low, but what about the, you know, what's the outlook here for Zoom? Is it ever going to make the profits to justify these yeah, kind yeah. of valuations? Well, Uber, that's where other criteria are useful. Yes, and Uber being another one, right? So 52-week low has, you know, recently been in the in the equation, but is it actually, you know, is it ever 
going to justify these kind of valuations. So what about the kind of filters or overlays mm. um, to ensure you're buying quality? Yeah, well, the first one is the 52-week low. And as, you know, as you're alluding to there, something can be a 52-week low to 12 months later. <laughs> you know, so it can be a 104-week low. So he's got a, a, a four other filters. What he basically says is, uh, first of all, look at a competitive advantage, right? So he's got a bit of a buffet tinge there to... Can this company do something? Now, my argument would be Zoom doesn't have a lock on video because Microsoft have got Teams, Google's got its own thing. So there's no real reason that, you know, there's no there's no thing that Zoom does that nothing, no one else does. Competitive advantage? Mm, not really. Um, Uber? Competitive advantage? Mm, not really. You can just want a taxi. So there's that to consider. The second one he talks about is the return on equity or return on invested capital. And that's a pretty straight figure. Again, Buffett talks about the return on equity as a really, really important demonstrator of a, of a quality company. The low debt, the one that you mentioned, Pete, most companies go under because they have debts that they can't pay. Um, and even, you know, you think about an, an individual basis. If you lose your job, that's really bad. But if you don't have a mortgage or any debt, well, it's not you know, it's not great, but you've got real trouble if you've got a debt that you've got to pay off or credit cards or, you know, you've got a margin loan or something. So low debt is another one. So when you start putting those criteria together, he says look at about, you know, hold about 25 to 30 stocks um, and that will, you know, that will stand you in good stead. The other, I think there's another indicator there. I think it might have been free cash flow. Free cash flow is right, one of the filters. Yes. And yeah. so again, you know, you want to get something that's got money coming in the door. A lot of those tech stocks have a lot of money coming in the door, but their costs are outrageous. And so they're still, you know, they're, they're not making money. Um, you know, I like to bash Uber every time because it's been around for about 12 or 13 years and it's, it, you know, it can't make money. And that's, again, where you'd look at that and say, well, that's not in a 52-week low, even though it's cheap. It's cheap in relation to the bubbly price that it's been rather than the earnings, the cash flow, the quality, you know, those sorts of things. Yeah, so, um, yeah, so I mean, I guess uh, Netflix might as well, not that it's at a 52-week low, but mm. it would fit into that kind of category. You know, they've been burning cash like it's going out of fashion yeah. at various points. Yep. Um, I, I suppose other stocks that, uh, you know, you could look at, a, you know, 52-week low, GM, uh, potentially JP Morgan, Barclays, Citibank, which mm. are for various reasons have had a, a tough um, period and hence the 52-week lows. I think, as you mentioned, a lot of tech stocks as well. I suppose the, it's difficult to say really whether um, this is an outperforming strategy because to yeah. some degree you're talking about stock picking or stock selection. And if you're going to hold a portfolio of uh, 25 or 30. I mean, there's going to be some judgment involved here um, because things like competitive moat, well, yes, it's a filter, but at some point you've got to decide, you know, what determines what's a competitive moat. You might have a different view yes. from me and, you know, we could come up with different solutions. But I suppose the, the principle here is to try to stop herding and to try to be contrarian or at least, you know, look at stuff that's a bit cheaper than it has been. Yep. Um, uh, there was an old uh, phrase Mark Twain said, you know, whenever you're on the side of the majority, it's time to 
uh, pause, pause and reflect yeah. because um, that is the point at which you become complacent, you stop thinking. Yep. And um, so I suppose what the 52-week low formula is trying to do is it is more system two type thinking, as Carmen mm. would say, uh, if I can get the words out, and also um, to try and take a more contrarian approach. But whether it's an outperforming strategy, well, that largely comes down to your ability to pick the right stocks. Yeah, I think that, and again, you raise this really important point that we, we talk about all the time. If you buy 25 to 30 stocks, please don't measure it against 300 stocks. And the reasons why are myriad, because... First of all, you are picking 30 separate companies that are in different fields. Secondly, the statistical distribution of 30 stocks individually selected and weighted is completely different than a market, than a market index. So there's a whole raft of subtleties there that you're not doing apples for apples. Secondly... Uh, and this is one thing we talk to people about in the coaching, when you buy a basket of individual stocks, you shouldn't measure it against the index, right? Because you're not doing apples for apples. Thirdly, if you're buying stocks over time, that's, you know, you might have a stock that underperforms and this is often what happens. You buy this 52-week low stock, it doesn't do anything for six months and then it absolutely rips 100%. So you go from this, you know, oh, geez, I think this one's a dud to suddenly going, this is the best thing I've bought in the last 10 years, right? So these things are really tricky. And again, it just comes back to these these principles we're trying to say to people, which is you want to think of your investment strategy as a circle. And why I say that is because you mentioned at the start, Pete, we tend to categorise things. Well, why 52? You know, why is it a 200-day moving average? Why not a, you know, 136? So the important thing is understanding what your age is, how much money you've got, and, you know, and we talk about that in risk. But just saying this strategy won't perform every year, but if I continue to use it, it will generally improve my investment returns, even from the point of view of saying I didn't beat the market, but I remained disciplined to the strategy. Right? And that's a really important point, because as you know, people jump out of bloody Uber and then into Netflix and they jump into Tesla. There's no, you know, that's all Daniel Kahneman's system one emotional investing stuff. You're never going to make money systematically by, you know, having a shot at everything that you read in the, the back pages of the Fin Review. You must have a system to do that. And so, but when you do that, you've got to understand, like you said about Mark Twain, you've got to understand that you're putting yourself in a contrarian box. Don't expect to follow all the other fish because you're not swimming in the same sort of direction. So there's a whole raft of issues there that these all these strategies we've talked about provide an individual investor with a way that they think is going to be their best investment approach for them. Yes, and a really good case in point, actually, a stock that we had... Um the Royal Mail in the UK, and yeah, the, yeah. You know, the basic principle was look at a <laughs> look up a look at a beaten up market that's got a low cape ratio. So we're looking at the UK FTSE. Yep. The Royal Mail had gone through all kinds of issues because people are oh, nobody's going to use the post anymore, and they were transitioning towards parcel deliveries mm. and so on. Then the pandemic came along, and 
to your point about stocks doing nothing Made for a long, long time. time. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> yeah, well, that's basically Dick. it. Uh, there was a nice dividend yield from the established business, but then the pandemic happened, and for all these different reasons, people were ordering stuff on Amazon instead of going to the supermarket, yep. and the stock went absolutely ballistic. But yep. depending on the time frame, there, you know, you could have held that stock for a year or two and thought, well, this is not really doing much. I'm getting my dividend and not much else. And then it went bananas. So, you know, that is, um, I guess, your point that it's sometimes benchmarking against uh, it's like an index or yeah. you know, like the FTSE 100 or the ASX 300 or whatever. It's not really necessarily applicable. Although I guess it gets to the point where if you're owning maybe 30 stocks in an index, you're going to get pretty close, particularly if you're looking at the bigger end of town. I suppose that really the the challenge here for the individual retail investor or everyday mum and dad investor is, you know, well, how much weight are you going to give to each variable? You know? Yeah, yeah. How important is the most? How important is debt? How yeah. important is the free cash flow? Pretty challenging, I guess, if you're not somebody who has the inclination to be spending hours and hours thinking about this stuff. But often, you know, there's a lot to be said for keeping it simple, you know, the KISS approach to investing. You know, there, there may be some challenges there. Yeah, when we talk about, you know, when we talk to people about buying individual stocks using these these our principles and these criteria, as I'd say to people, decide on a level of a dividend, right? So you might say 5%, that's it. If it's under 5 it's going to have to be seriously cheap for some other reason that I should buy it. PE at 12 or less. If it's a PE of 14 and it has a dividend yield of 6, you might say, okay, I'll include that, right? So again, you can finesse it, but generally you want to pick a baseline where uh, my understanding is Buffett has a has a return of 10%. That's it. It's got to return at least 10% compound. So that's his baseline. And with Luke... Wiley's formula, you might say the return on equity has got to be 15%, the PE's got to be below 15, the dividend yield's got to be at least five, and it's not going to be a small cap, right? So automatically, as we mentioned previously, you can get into places like Validia, which is a United States uh, stock screener, and you get plenty of stock screeners everywhere these days. You can put your criteria in, bingo, there's your list, and you can, again, filter it further from there by, for example, Pete saying, well, we're at, we're at the market high. I'm going to really go for companies that don't have a lot of debt. Righto, well, that'll knock out another 30. And eventually you prune it down to the criteria that suit you at that point of the market. Um, but generally, as you say, don't look at the market. And if the market's ripping higher, think, well, what am I doing wrong? You're not doing anything wrong because... Like you said with Royal Mail, when we talked about that and when we invested in it, it looked terrible, right? But I sort of looked at it and said, well, it's got a big market share. They're going through a few efficiency issues with unions and that sort of stuff. If it comes good, it's going to shoot up. And that's what it did. Now, I'm not saying we do that every time and it works perfectly. But again, it's just really simple stuff rather than, oh, you know, I've got to be like Warren Buffett and read the last 50 annual reports. It's like, mate, what happened in 1946 has got nothing to do with today, right? So, you know, it's, it might sound showy, but it, it, it's completely irrelevant. Anything past, you know, the last two, the last 30 years is probably irrelevant because when we deregulated the globe in 1980s and we became integrated, that changed a whole raft of things for a whole lot of companies. 
So, you know, reading about what happened in 1932 to IBM is like, well, that's interesting, but it's got, you know, it's got zero relevance for today. <laughs> yes, and uh, yes, and uh, I suppose the survivorship point is an important one. In Royal Mail's case, uh, I think there's a certain line of thinking, well, yeah. it's not really going to be going under. There'll be government support for a business Absolutely. like this. You know? And that is one of the things. You're when, Whenever you're picking individual stocks, you do have to think, either towards the bigger end of town or you know, try and think about whether a business is going to be around for 10, 20, 30 years because Absolutely. You, what you really don't want when you're picking individual stocks is a zero. Um, well, that's your first criteria, isn't it? You've got to survive. Hence the, the debt filter and the other yep. quality filters that Wiley talks about. So we'll put a link in the show notes to a few resources. Obviously, the Luke Wiley book, The 52-Week Formula. Also, if you're into your Buffett and your equations, uh, Buffettology by Mary Buffett, which is a book we've um, referenced mm. before. Also, if you're um, interested in the competitive mode or competitive advantage, uh, Bruce Greenwald, who you mentioned, Competition Demystified is another good read. Yeah, good book. What is it that keeps a business uh, viable and profitable for very long periods of time? It's that competitive advantage. So having an understanding of that is obviously key as well. And um, so I think that's... Um, probably it for today on the 52-week formula. So uh, thanks for joining today and we'll see you next week. Cheers, Steve. Okay, cheers, Steve. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you want to know more, you can download a free chapter and extra bonuses from our new book, Low Rates, High Returns. Just visit www.lowrateshighreturns.com forward slash book to download your free copy. The things we've discussed in this episode shouldn't be taken as financial advice and we recommend you reach out to a licensed professional advisor who can help you with your unique circumstances. Stephen and I are both on LinkedIn and Twitter so do reach out and connect with us. And finally, it'd be great if you could subscribe and leave us a review. It really helps others to find the show. Now take care and invest wisely. Cheers. Cheers.